Well, good morning. It is 9.03 on this uh, Wednesday, December 8th. I'm Jay Barrett, and this is The Coffee Table. Today, we're talking about energy. No, not the kind in the coffee cup that's uh, keeping me awake on these dark mornings. Uh, the kind that uh, heats the water for my coffee and your coffee. It keeps our our homes warm. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, experts. If you have any questions about alternative energy, we are surrounded by it here on the Kenai Peninsula, ways to make electricity and heat our homes. And we only take advantage of a couple of them. So let's, uh, let, let's meet our guests. We have uh, Levi Kilcher, uh, who is uh, uh, working on tidal energy um, Tidal energy uh, uh, projects, one in Cook Inlet right now. Uh, are you with us there, Levi? Yeah, thanks, Jay. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, yeah, as, as you said, I'm Levi Kilcher. I'm a scientist at General working in the water power program. And uh, I lead the resource assessment uh, work for NREL and the Department of Energy for marine energy, which includes wave and tidal energy. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you said, I, we did a bunch of tidal energy work in Cook Inlet off in the over the summer. Oh, excellent, excellent. And uh, your last name will be familiar to uh, many people on the Kenai Peninsula. You're, you're from around here. That's right. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a part of that uh, clan, the Kilter clan, and um, it's, it's really an amazing uh, story, I guess, or opportunity for me to be able to come back home and uh, do this work that I'm passionate about in uh, so close to home. That's excellent. Uh, we also have uh, Aaron McKittrick on the line, I hope. Uh, I haven't gotten confirmation that you're there. Uh, hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? I can. Wow, the wonders of modern technology. Uh, and you're in Soldovia today, right? Yes, I am in Soldovia, where I've lived for at least a dozen years now. Um, and I am on the board of directors of Homer Electric Association and am the board president for the generation side of our co-op, the part that makes the power. Ah, excellent, excellent. You know, I was uh, when I returned to the Kenai Peninsula here uh, three or four years ago, I, uh, I went in to, to sign up for my account to get my electricity going, and they had in Kenai a picture of the uh, all the board members, and it struck me that there must be something about uh, running electric co-ops that attracts middle-aged white men. So I'm really glad that you're on the board now. <laughs> uh, maybe it's yeah, the technical it aspects like that. at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then also uh, from HEA, uh, David Thomas. Are you with us there, David? Yes, I am, Jay. Oh, excellent. Tell us a little bit about what you do. What's your title there? You're the Director of Strategic Services? Uh, yes. And oops, am I getting some feedback here? Um, so, yes, in that role, I am in part responsible to implement the board's ambitious goal to get to 50% renewable by 2025 to not have all of our eggs in a natural gas basket where we currently get about 86% of our energy. And that will entail on a long term continuing to pursue various hydro projects, but in the shorter term 
implementing more wind and solar on a utility scale because that's what um, uh, those are the energy sources that are available now to be added in the time frame of a few years. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, you know, I've only been here a year and a half, and I still haven't remembered our phone number. Uh, the correct phone number, if you'd like to call in uh, and uh, interact with our guests, is uh, 907-235-7721, 235-7721. Uh, I imagine the people at KDLL and Kenai are getting phone calls right now because I accidentally gave out their phone number. Um, so we are talking about all this kind of energy. We have plenty of hydro here, though uh, I, I, there are expansion plans. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure who to ask here first, Aaron or David, but uh, I understand there's expansion plans for the hydro we have here. How much uh, well, what are those plans, and how much can that be expanded? How much can we uh, turn to hydro to uh, as another egg in the basket there, as it were? Well, there's a couple things here. One is that the hydro project at Bradley is owned by the state, by the Alaska Energy Authority, and shared and paid for by all the utilities on the rail belt connected to it. So any expansion we by default would get about 12% um, of any expansion. I think that they are, so the state, the Alaska Energy Authority is doing the studies and what they're studying is to divert another stream into the existing reservoir. That was done very recently with Battle Creek uh, basically increasing the amount of water in the reservoir and therefore the amount of energy. And now they're looking at one stream over uh, Dixon Glacier, that creek, and can that be diverted? I don't know that they have an actual, like, amount of power that could be generated yet in that um, assessment. I think it's too early. HEA also has in the works a small hydro project that we have a FERC permit for at Grant Lake that's been in the works for many years and um, hopefully getting closer to actually being something real. Uh-huh. And um, it, it, if, I, go if ahead. I could add to what Aaron said, which all of which was correct, um, on the specific Battle Creek diversion into um, Rattle Lake, HEA did initially get the same 12% we have on the original Bridal Lake project, but we acquired uh, shares from other utilities, so we're actually getting 44% of that water. So we got a, a bigger tranche of that expansion than of the original project. Mm -hmm. Are there other uh, potential um, expansions out there? On a state level, the outcome the outflow from Dixon Glaciers, the big big one that Aaron mentioned, our much smaller Grant Lake project. Um, th there are other watersheds that are, that are potentials, and we, on an ongoing basis, study them and look at the economics. Um, but it took us 11 years to get to a FERC permit, a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission permit for, for Grant Lake. So th that's on a longer-term project planning horizon that is going on all the time. We've looked at other sources uh, and work, try to model how that fits into our system. Um, hydro is our most 
versatile, um, not just most versatile renewable resource, it's our most versatile generation asset of any kind, um, but it's expensive and it's a very long planning horizon. Mm-hmm. And to clarify about expensive, it's expensive upfront to build a hydro project. The hydropower we're currently getting is the cheapest power on the entire system and in the entire rail belt. Oh, oh okay. Um, yeah, I recall years ago uh, there was talk about uh, adding more hydro up near the uh, central peninsula, but there's a lot of concerns about uh, diverting water from salmon. Uh, I, I uh, remember looking at this Bradley Lake expansion and thinking, well, these streams are pretty high up. They're probably not salmon streams. Uh, is, is that the case? There certainly aren't salmon up at the level of the diversion, but uh, at Bradley Lake and I think any similar project, there is a requirement that a certain amount of water has to go down the original stream course for the salmon that spawn near the mouth of the river. And I expect that would be true for any other similar project. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Uh we spoke, uh, Aaron, um, a couple of months ago. Uh, we were hoping to have you on to talk about uh, a solar, um, well, uh, well, a, a battery project in uh, the Central Peninsula and then uh, how it may uh, serve as uh, storage for solar. Could you talk about that storage uh, a, a bit, that storage uh, system? Sure. So um, those it's called a BESS, often Battery Energy Storage System. Why we need an entire acronym to say giant battery, I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> it's made by Tesla, and uh, we sort of started that process off in 2019 of putting this giant battery up in Soldatna, and it's now charged, and so it's there, it's on. I don't know if all the testing has been complete yet. David might know that. And it stores 93 megawatt hours of power, which would be maybe about a couple hours of the entire HEA system when our power use is low, like in the middle of the summer, and less if it's... Um, you know, in the winter like now. And there's a couple things that that does for us. One thing it d will do is it'll allow a more reliable and efficient operation all the time. It'll allow us to run our natural gas plants at more efficient levels. It will respond more quickly to faults on the system than any power plant can and improving reliability for us and the whole rail belt. And when we're cut off from Anchorage, which we have been, we were for half of 2019 pretty much, it saves us from having to wastefully run an entire extra power plant from for reliability reasons. So all those things made the battery make sense just by itself. And then there's this additional benefit that once you have a battery like that, it really helps regulate anything power that's variable. So 
any solar, any wind that come onto our system, we have a much greater ability to make use of that kind of power now than we would have before. Wow. Uh, any plans of uh, installing any more of those uh, gizmos? It sounds like a good deal. You just uh, store up uh, energy until you need it. Um, I don't think we have any plans for we don't have any plans for that now. Uh, we just turned this on and it's fairly large and I think it should meet our needs hopefully for the near term. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar uh, I, with I the, uh, that the oh, go ahead, Dave. batteries in Alaska will be um, in the Anchorage area and Fairbanks that once upon a time their battery in 2003 was the biggest in the world. It's teeny in comparison to ours now that they too would get a, a modern high capacity battery so i statewide i'd expect those to happen first before hea expands on our <laughs> on our brand new battery uh-huh you know i was just going to ask if you uh had compared to the the one in fairbanks which i'd heard was the largest in the world at one time so uh the one here the one up in the central peninsula much larger than uh, six fold, yeah. Yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Um, so there are plenty of ways to generate electricity. Uh, there's, uh, you know, burning carbon. There's uh, catching water as it falls. And there's uh, collecting the, uh, the sunlight, which occasionally uh, falls on us as well. Uh, Aaron, could you talk to us about uh, the potential for solar on the Kenai Peninsula? I mean, it's in a way kind of surprising to people that there's any potential for solar at all in Alaska, but there is. And as the costs have come down, it's only just now um, becoming possible to get solar power at scale in Alaska that can be price competitive with natural gas. And because of that, there are various um, private companies, independent power producers that are looking to develop these kinds of solar projects. There's one uh, called Renewable IPP that they have a project up in Willow and one that's going to go in in Houston um, and want to uh, put in a larger one on the Kenai Peninsula. And there's other companies looking at that kind of thing, too, on a smaller scale. And so we are, you know, kind of waiting to see what they come up with with uh, proposed contracts. But it's, it's kind of a, a paradigm shift that it's even possible to get solar power here that isn't really expensive that is i uh you know i was talking with a meteorologist the other day uh about uh solar um radiation and and he said on december 1st uh tucson arizona gets as much directs on a clear day uh solar solar radiation by noon that fairbanks will get the whole month so it, it, it is a big, uh, a large scale from nothing to uh, you're just sitting in the in the sun all day. Uh, what what 
How does that pencil out here? Uh, you know, do, do we know how many days or have an idea of how many days we can get generation out of the year? Or We, we do have pretty good information about that, both from our own members who have rooftop solar, but also from RIPP's installation in Willow that's now operated for a few years. And, and it's what you'd expect. It, it's generation during the day, during the summer. So it, it adds energy during those times and saves, therefore, natural gas consumption uh, for HEA if we're not running our combustion turbines. Um, thankfully, um, most wind locations in Alaska are windier in the winter. So there's the potential to uh, seasonally get, of course, the solar energy primarily in the summer. But, uh, but again, fortunately, uh, windy sites tend to be windier in the winter. Uh, when, as a system, we, we need more energy. Okay. Aaron? Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say, too. And mm -hmm. that the thing is you're not needing, because we do have both the battery and the natural gas plants, it's not what we're going to depend on for reliability like it doesn't matter if it's a cloudy day it doesn't matter if the wind goes calm you can integrate and the integration is the word you often use you can integrate quite a bit of this variable power as long as you have things like hydro and batteries and other power plants without having to worry that you know what if it's not sunny and i think sometimes people mistakenly think that if you have anything like solar power then you're just depending on it being sunny all the time which is very much not true huh um do, does hea use uh diesel at all I, I back up emergency anywhere yeah, in Hitzeldovia we do. It's a very small, small piece of our system, but uh, there are backup diesel generators in Soldovia and Port Graham that are used uh, a lot, including yesterday when storms knock out the power lines to power the local communities before they can get the lines can get fixed. Oh, okay. Okay. I, uh, for a year after high school, I worked in a diesel power plant in Dillingham and it was uh, interesting to say the least um, I lived in Kodiak for uh, 15 years before I moved here and they are um, well an isolated system of course so it is, might be easier for them but they're pretty much a hundred percent renewable they've got uh, uh, hydroelectric which they expanded a few years ago and then they put in six uh, I want to say two and a half megawatt uh, wind turbines, and then they also have some sort of kinetic energy storage thing down at the dock for surge power by the uh, by the big electric uh, gantry cranes. Uh, do we have the potential here? I know it's, it's not it's not nearly as windy in Homer as it is in Kodiak. Do we have the potential here for more solar on the Kenai Peninsula? I mean, we have the potential for solar and wind both. And I meant the, wind. I'm what sorry. What allows Cody? Yeah. Uh, we do. It's not right in downtown Homer, but there are other windy areas on the peninsula. Um, 
the thing that allowed, they get about 20% of their power from wind in Kodiak, and there's certainly plenty of wind here too. The harder piece of replicating Kodiak's model is that large amount of hydro that is that really flexible um, base load power. And so to get all the way to 100% renewable power like Kodiak did, we would need either a, you know, some form of hydro that was big or other energy sources, you know, potentially tidal if it ever gets cheap enough, or other geothermal, other energy sources that would be more stable to fill in the rest of that uh, kind of base load or regulation or not variable power, because you can't really have 100% of your power being variable. Right, right. And I, I imagine the batteries would uh, help with that. Uh, you know, I took a I took a long road trip here a couple of years ago through the lower 48, and you know, in uh, Wyoming, uh, uh, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, holy cow, th there are miles upon miles upon miles of wind, hundreds of them in every installation. Um, I know Fire Island, Fire Island up here uh, between uh, Kenai Peninsula and Anchorage has got I don't know a dozen maybe. Uh, is there anything stopping us from filling the top of the uh, Kenai Peninsula up there near Turning an Arm where it's very windy with, uh, you know, dozens of windmills, giant wind farm? Um, you mean like in the, in the Forelands area? Yeah, yeah, from the Forelands north, yeah. Yeah, what, what stops us is a lack of transmission. Um, the rule of thumb that's always bandied about is that new roads and new transmission each cost about a million dollars a mile and yet somehow in alaska it usually ends up being a bit more than that so when you move more than a few miles off our existing grid then the economics of a project um go downhill quickly um we we do have windy spots and we are prospecting for wind uh farm locations on places in our, on our service area that are closer to our transmission um, but yeah we can uh, we expect that some substantial wind um, will be part of our path forward and that may be HEA self-executing a project it may be purchasing wind from independent power producers who finance the, the project and just sell us the energy output from it. Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, timeline is uh, HEA that uh, you are, are working on into the future? Are you looking 20, 30 years down the line here and actively making uh, preparations? Mostly, no. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> our planning horizons are five and ten years. Um, a hydro project we might hope to break ground on 10 years after we identify it as a likely prospect. Uh, wind and solar happen over a several year time frame. It might be a good time to hand things over to Levi when you're talking about decade long project horizons where title is uh, not on our planning horizon because we're not gonna get megawatts of power in the next handful or years or 10 years um, but there's huge potential there and 
uh, how do you get from here to where you'd like to be in 20 years is by doing the research and the pilot projects and supporting that that research. And HEA is, is participating in that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Levi, you have been uh, very patient there. I'm, I'm sorry to have uh, uh, not turned to you sooner, uh, but your uh, current project is uh, very specific. It's about uh, tapping the tidal flow in Cook Inlet and uh, the aforementioned uh, Forelands area where uh, Cook Inlet uh, sort of narrows would be a good spot. Uh, could you tell us about uh, the potential for that project and what it would entail? Yeah, so we made uh, some resource measurements right there at the East Foreland offshore of Nikiski um, in about uh, 60 meters of water. And we put uh, these sensors down, these uh, acoustic Doppler current profilers that uh, measure the water velocity at that site. And we also measured things like turbulence and temperature and salinity as well as sediment concentrations. And so the measurements were really about capturing, you know, as much data as we can to to then hand over. So all this data is going to be made publicly available to hand over to industry so that they can use that to design technologies that harness the resource efficiently and that are also robust enough to survive in that environment for kind of the time frame that we you would need these technologies to survive uh, in order to potential out to be economical, which is usually about 10 to 20 years. But, you know, tidal technologies are still at a very early stage. Um, as Dave was saying, uh, you know, we're basically at the stage of wind industry, say, 30, 30 years ago or so in terms of we're still testing single devices um, and we're starting to show promise in those single device tests. They're starting to generate power for, you know, months to a year at a time sort of consistently and they operate um, relatively robustly over that time. But we don't have the long-term tests over a decade or more that therefore demonstrate that these technologies can operate for 10 years or more. Um, and so that's really why, you know, these technologies are not yet commercial, but it's also, uh, it's why we need to start doing that work now in terms of testing these technologies and showing that they can work um, in order so that 10 years from now we can be, we can be saying that these technologies uh, perform as expected and and can meet the cost targets that they need to to, to be commercial a commercial option. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the different kinds of um, uh, tidal generating uh, technology that that there is? Yeah, there's uh, there's kind of a suite of technologies that uh, are being researched. Um, at the basic level, tidal energy technologies are harnessing flowing water. And so I often just, you know, for simplicity, I say, well, they're, they're underwater wind turbines. Um, and there's in the U.S., there's a couple of companies 
that are developing this te- these technologies. Ocean Renewable Power Company is one, and they actually have um, a permit, a prelim- preliminary permit, to uh, sort of develop technologies at that East Portland site. So I'm expecting to, you know, be working closely with them um, and, you know, sharing this data uh, and working with them uh, moving forward. But um, there's also other companies in the U.S. Uh, Verdant Power is a, another company that has a horizontal axis turbine. It looks a little more like a tr- traditional wind turbine. Um, the ORPC device is what we call a cross-flow device. So the um, you can think of it sort of as like a, uh, a lawnmower, an old-school lawnmower that uh, the, uh, the blades are harnessing the, the, the energy from the flowing water. Um, and then there's also a bunch of European companies that are developing technologies. But where a lot of the research is actually going right now the, is into, you know, are these technologies going to be floating? Are they going to be at the surface? Are they going to be floating in the middle of the water column? Are they going to be fixed to the bottom? If they're floating, you know, how do the mooring systems work? All of this kind of research is are things we need to be working on now in order to uh, develop technology. Mm-hmm. What makes the uh, Forelands area so good for this, this sort of thing? Is it because it narrows there and the, the current uh, increases? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of the large tides in the Cook Inlet area that, you know, Alaskans and people in the peninsula are so familiar with, and then the fact that it pinches right there at the foreland to accelerate the flow. Um, but Cook Inlet is the nation's number one tidal energy resource. It has, we have 30% of the nation's resource right there uh, in Cook Inlet. And that's really due to the fact that we have those large tides, and then Cook Inlet is just such a large water body. There's a large volume of water moving in and out uh, of the inlet every day, uh, twice a day. Uh, And, you know, more broadly, Alaska in general has massive marine renewable energy resources. So, you know, along the Aleutian chain, we've got large tidal resources. We also have um, large wave energy resources. That's a whole other type of energy technology that NREL and other labs are, work, are working with industry to develop those technologies. Um, and, you know, offshore wind is another one that Alaska has a massive offshore wind resource, um, you know, because we, we just have such a large um, ocean, you know, we're, we're an ocean state. Um, and so these are the types of things that NREL is working on, is trying to help uh, the state understand and see these opportunities more clearly um, because I really do think, you know, Alaskans have been experiencing uh, the, the effects of climate change for several decades now. And I think people are starting to see, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help people see that we have these massive renewable energy resources um, available to us and uh, we can be a part of leading the charge in this transition to uh clean technology that would be uh that would be terrific 
Uh, it is 9.35. Let's take a uh, quick dance break here. Uh, I want to remind you, support for Coffee Table comes from Pier 1 Theatre. Homer's Community Theatre, supporting community voices, schedules, and information on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and at pier1theatre.org. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. This is KBVI Homer AM 890. A quick weather break while we take a break from the coffee table on the western Kenai Peninsula. Today, snow likely in the morning, then mostly cloudy with a chance of snow in the afternoon. Snow accumulation up to 1 inch. Highs of 15 to 20, except in the mid-20s to lower 30s south of Clam Gulch. Light winds around Kachmak Bay. Variable wind 10 miles per hour becoming west 10 to 20 miles per hour in the afternoon. Tonight, expect mostly cloudy. A slight chance of snow in the evening. Lows around 10 above, except 10 to 25 above south of Clam Gulch. Light winds around Kachmak Bay. West wind 15 to 30 miles per hour shifting to the southwest 10 to 20 miles per hour after midnight currently 25 degrees and snow here in downtown homer stay tuned for the coffee table coming right back It is 9.38. I'm Jay Barrett, uh, and you're listening to The Coffee Table. Uh, we are talking about energy, alternative energies, uh, the energy to, uh, to uh, run our homes and uh, computers and, and heat, our, uh, heat our homes, oh, you know, and run our cars. You know, there's an uh, uh, el- electrical, um, what do you call those, car charging place in town now, uh, which is pretty cool. We have uh, guests here, Levi Kilcher, with uh, the National Energy Research Laboratory. Is that right? Did I get that right, Levi? You still there? National Renewable Energy Lab. Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, Aaron McKittrick, who is on the HEA Board of Directors, and David Thomas, who is the Strategic Services uh, Director for Homer Electric Association. We're also uh, taking your calls um, at, uh, let me make sure I have the right number, 235-7721. Two, two, 
and give us a shout, and we will uh, get your question on the air. We had one uh, come in a while ago. Uh, Carl is wondering about the potential for uh, putting a wind generator out on the spit, uh, specifically to power uh, the hockey rink. Um, that sounds like a, a, a good idea. Uh, is there much room for niche uh, and, um, you know, consumer um, put up energy uh, additions? Net metering. Do we have net metering, and is this something that could be used uh, uh, here? I, yeah, I can take a whack at that. We do. Um, yes, we have net metering. HEA allows its members to install small um, rooftop solar, uh, wind, potentially even hydro or biomass systems. But as a practical matter, solar systems make sense on a small scale, and wind does not. Everyone thinks they live in a windy spot if it was windy one day last month, but it needs to be windy 30 and 40% of the hours of the year for the cost of the wind turbine to uh, pay for itself economically. So also wind scales better when it gets larger, when you get a large wind turbine up above the trees and up above the landscape where the winds aloft are stronger than they are down at ground level. So a member is allowed to put in their own wind turbine and interconnect and use the system as a battery, basically, for their house. But it's almost always going to pencil out that solar might make sense on your home, wind almost certainly won't. But at a utility scale, the large turbines that you see on Kodiak Island or on Fire Island or the next generation of wind turbines that are larger than those, that's where the the wholesale power gets cheap enough that it can look better than cost less than the natural gas that we avoid using. Wait, wait. So you're saying I can't put up a handful of uh, little consumer wind generators here on my property and make money from HEA? <laughs> you can put up the, wind generators on your property, but you probably you won't make money. reduces your consumption, you'll save retail rates on your electricity, ballpark, right. 24 cents. And if you make a whole lot more, then we'll pay a wholesale rates, which are about 8 or $0.09, cents, um, for the excess that you produce each month. So, yeah, any any member has the option of doing that at, at their home or, or at their business uh, for a system up to 25 kilowatts. That's net metering. HEA was the um, first proponent of that on uh, the rail belt and has, at every step, had the greatest penetration, the greatest partition, participation of our members in our net metering program. And we tried to bump it up to 10% uh, of our um, average system load. Uh, the Regulatory Commission of Alaska wouldn't let us, but we, we have a few percent more that we're uh, allowed to expand our, our net metering percentage. And every year we see more members put in more solar systems. Mm-hmm. 
and hmm. maybe an interest, you know, to step back, like think when people think about things like that, maybe it's helpful to remember why we have an electric co-op and an electric grid in the first place is that a lot of things make more sense with economy of scale. And that goes for non-renewable generation. It's why it's not doesn't make more sense for every single house on the Kenai Peninsula to have their own little um, diesel powered generator and just run on that. And it also is true for renewable energy as well. You get um, cheaper power at economy of scale by doing larger things and then transmitting the power across power lines to a bunch of people. And that doesn't become less true with renewables. Hmm. Um... Let's see, David. Could you explain the uh, the difference in wholesale versus retail costs of electricity? Uh, you mentioned it sure. earlier. Sure, and thanks thanks for that question. Um, when HEA uh, burns natural gas, um, that costs us uh, about eight and a half cents for the fuel that to go into making one kilowatt hour. But then we have many, many fixed costs. We have debt service. We have the poles and wires that distribute that power. We have um, insurance. We have uh, labor for the 135 employees who you know maintain and operate the system. And those costs, those fixed costs, don't change if you turn the light on or off. Um, so there is a, a large difference between the cost to generate wholesale power, which is, let's say, eight and a half cents, and the retail price of that to get it to your house through transmission and substations and distribution lines, the transformer you see in front of your house, and all the member services we provide that bring it up to 24 cents. It, it, it's a striking uh, difference because the fixed cost of a utility when you buy pole and wires and turbines and dams that are utility grade and will last for 30 or 40 years or our hydro facilities will last for 100 years, those aren't cheap assets. And reliability is more important than price. Some people may push back on that until the lights go out in the next outage and then you, you don't care so much what it costs you, you want your power back on on that cold winter night um so our back to net metering um it can make sense to do solar on a small scale because you're saving retail power rates at the utility scale as aaron said everything gets more efficient everything gets more uh economic and we hope to deliver wind and solar projects that with wholesale prices at six, seven, eight cents that are less than the natural gas that we would use to produce the same energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, caller, a question from caller, Olga, uh, asks, why don't we put up wind turbines uh, up by Bradley Lake? Um, I don't know how windy it is up there, but I imagine you've got a substation already that uh, can accept electricity. Is that a possibility, wind turbines uh, co-located? 
it, it, it is a possibility, and it's actually one that uh, Aaron um, identified. And uh, it, it's one of many possibilities that we're studying. You're right that it has the advantage that transmission already goes there, and that is a significant cost savings. It's also an expensive place to do work to get um, equipment in to rework roads to move 250-foot-long blades um, to transship something that components that are acquired internationally onto small enough barges that could be brought into the uh, to the Bradley Project dock or a or a new dock to be constructed. So it's it's one of the windy locations that that is on our um, planning horizon and one of the locations that we, we prospect for wind. Um, the advantage is it's windy, the advantage is that it has transmission, but it, it, it is a more expensive place to work um, than on the uh, North American road system <laughs> on the north side of the bay. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. Wow, that's uh, what. Uh, thank you, Olga, for the question. I wouldn't have uh, learned that if she hadn't called it in. Um, here's another question. This is for uh, Levi. Uh, it's from uh, from a listener, and uh, he is talking about curious about underground tidal water, which um, produces electricity from water seepage from tidal water level fluctuations. Do you? Um, do you know anything about this, Levi? Um, I have to say that's a new one for me. Um, the seepage, you know, energy comes from sort of volumes of water moving from one place to another. And so it tends to be more energy when there's more water moving. So seepage to me just sounds like it's slowing things down, but um, happy to talk about these ideas with anyone mm-hmm. interested. But the elevation change questions about um, tidal energy is one that frequently comes up, you know, just can you harness energy from the water level moving up and down? And the answer is yes, certainly, of course. Um, but when we've done some economic analysis to see how that works, um, it turns out it needs to cover a large, a huge area of water to capture energy from from the tide moving up and down. And the cost of that structure, whatever it is, sort of styrofoam or um, concrete or whatever you're going to make it out of, it's so big that it just becomes really expensive compared to the amount of power that you get out of it. So. The tidal elevation power is something that we typically don't look at for those reasons, um, and we focus on the, the, the current, the flowing water site um, instead. And while I have the mic, I just wanted to add one more thing, you know, um, that we are working with Homer Electric Association on um, analyzing how tidal energy would fit into sort of their energy generation mix uh, it on kind of a long time horizon. So, you know, as David has said, they can't plan for um, tidal energy because the technology is just not at a state where basically banks finance it. 
But we are trying to get ahead of the curve in terms of analyzing, you know, when we do get to that point, how big of a project would fit into the the grid that we have now and maybe trying to look at as the grid, as the Kenai Peninsula grid grows, um, how would tidal energy fit in? And, you know, because one of the advantages that we see with tidal energy is that it's so predictable. As everyone knows, you know, you can set your clock by the tide. And that's an advantage compared to other variable renewables like solar and wind, which fluctuate with, fluctuate by cloud cover and, you know, just wind, wind variability. Um, so I'm really excited about working with HEA on that analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, about a little less than 10 minutes to go here. Um, you know, on a clear day, you can see at least one volcano from here. Uh, and if you go a little up the road, you can see uh, several more. Uh, there have been projects uh, announced over the years about uh, tapping thermal energy from uh, volcanoes. Uh, Dave or Aaron, do you know, uh, or Levi, uh, uh, do you know if there of any uh, projects that uh, are on the horizon within the uh, close enough to be thinking about they might might actually uh, happen? Sure. Um, the last big effort in that direction was by a company, Ormat. And they had identified some medium-grade heat resources associated with uh, Mount Spur. And um, they would actually use an organic fluid that boiled more easily than water does. Um, and they were proposing a 50-megawatt plant and were looking for the state to buy ballpark 50 miles of road and 50 miles of transmission for them. Again, those are you know, at least a million dollars a mile each. Um, and the money was not forthcoming, and that prospect kind of dried up. Um, I don't anticipate in the current state budget that those kind of grants are, are, are going to be available in the near future. But, but that was it was technically feasible to create 50 megawatts of which is you know roughly homer electrics load um on mount spur um from that geothermal resource but there were a lot of fixed costs associated with it which if there aren't grants available that ultimately affects the cost of the energy mm-hmm. sure sure um Another about thing oh go ahead that i was just gonna say that i don't know really anything any details at all, but there is supposedly geothermal exploration going on also in Augustine Island. There was a DNR put out a call for public comments on it this summer. Now, Augustine Island is, you know, out there in the middle of the inlet, not close to any transmission, so I'm not sure how or if that could work out, but it's something that at least somebody thinks is worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, and quickly, uh, what about biomass uh, uh, generation? Uh, the landfill up in Soldotna is pretty darn big. Is it big enough to uh, to produce enough natural gas to uh, run a, a generator? Where are we at on that? It, it, it is, and that is a project that HA has worked with on the borough, and we stand ready to 
take it to the next step when whenever the borough would like. The the scheme would be that the natural gas, the methane that is generated as the garbage decomposes, would be captured rather than being emitted fugitively now uh, and burned in a reciprocating engine, uh, much like the emergency generator that's located in Saldovia. And we'd add a little bit of utility gas to that. And it would be a combined heat and power plant. So the power generator would go onto the grid for all of the HA members to use. But the heat from that engine, from its exhaust and, and from its coolant, would be used to evaporate leachate, that dirty water that collects in the landfill that the borough has to get rid of. And they currently just burn natural gas for heat to evaporate that leachate. Well, this would burn both landfill gas and a bit of utility gas to generate electricity, but then use the waste heat from that to evaporate the leachate. So it would be overall a much more efficient process, and the, the economics are attractive for, for both the borough and, uh, and HEA. Um, and we're, we're ready to pursue that. Uh, borough has a lot of irons in the fire, and I think it may be a bit of a bandwidth issue on, on their side, but it, it pencils out. And it, it was done north of Anchorage on, on their landfill. Uh, they're, they're doing a landfill gas. So it is it is viable in, in our climate. Uh, the little bacteria don't make as much methane as quickly as they do in the southern United States. Uh, but it does work in this area. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, and the one last thing I have on my notes here as far as uh, energy generation, I may have missed something, I don't know. But uh, it, in the news recently, the Air Force announced that they're putting a uh, small uh, nuclear uh, generator up in Fairbanks. At, uh, I think it's a clear Air Force uh, station. Um, and I think Homer is still a uh, anti or a no nuke uh, city. Uh, how big of a part will nuclear energy uh, uh, play in the future of uh, energy as uh, you know we turn away from fossil fuels? Well, a bit like tidal, it's beyond our planning horizon. Um, right. These small nuclear plants offer perhaps great energy security for a military base that's willing to pay for it, just as they do on a nuclear submarine. But the cost of the energy coming out of it is vastly higher than gas or coal or diesel or wind or solar or most anything else. So at, at this point, you, you have to want that great security of having your own generation or perhaps be some remote mine site with incredibly high energy rates for one of these small nuclears to pencil out. Mm-hmm. Or maybe also, Elon Musk's uh, like, base on the moon. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Also, much like Tidal, it's a lot of that technology isn't, you know, it's not actually all the way developed and tested yet for the various advanced nuclear ideas. And I think that, you know, a lot of things get thrown around in news articles. It's sometimes not easy to distinguish, like, what energy technologies are, you know, things that people are developing that might be part of the future, and what energy technologies are things that you could go to a bank and get financing and build them now. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's 
that's a big distinction from the perspective of, you know, operating a utility. Right. Well, we are going to leave it there, and we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Aaron McKittrick uh, from the HEA Board, David Thomas uh, with uh, HEA Strategic Services, and Levi Kilcher with the National Renewable uh, Energy uh, Lab. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Uh, it's been uh, The Coffee Table. I'm Jay Barrett, and we send you back now to your regular programming. Thank you all. Support comes from Pier 1 Theater. Homer's Community Theater Supporting Community Voices. Schedules and information on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and pier1theater.org.